Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. Well, good morning. Last week was our fall kickoff Sunday, and we're, as Caleb and uh, Chris both mentioned, we kicked off a new sermon series in the book of Acts, and we'll be continuing that uh, this morning. Uh, Believe it or not, and I know it doesn't feel like it outside, but we are more than halfway through the month of September, uh, so we are firmly in the fall season. And I don't know about you, but fall is my favorite time of year. I love cooler weather, I love the changing leaves, I love college football. Uh, Chris and I strongly disagree on this one, but I love pumpkin spice lattes. Uh, An amen? Anybody else? No? Okay. Uh, But it's all too short, isn't it? Uh, The fall season. It seems like here in Oklahoma, we get uh, 90s until September, or I mean, until October, not September. And then October, we get two weeks of nice weather, and then November, and it's cold, and the fall weather is too short. College football, we're three weeks into the college football season, which means we're already a quarter of the way through the regular season, uh, which it's just flying by. It's all too short. And I was thinking about how short it is um, last night as I was watching my Oklahoma State Cowboys play a very inferior opponent um, in Arkansas Pine Bluff. They won 63-7. to And I was thinking, if you're a college football player, is it hard to get excited for games like that? When you know you just show up, you're going to win the game. Uh, in two weeks, you got Jeff's Baylor Bears coming up. That's going to be a big game. Like, is it hard to get excited to play Arkansas Pine Bluff? And on the one hand, it seems like it, it would be. Uh, you're looking ahead to Baylor already. But on the other hand, when you only get 12 opportunities to go play football and do the thing you love each season, it seems like you'd be excited to play anybody, even if you're going to beat them 63-7. to uh, and it really is incredible when you think about how much work college football players put in all year long just to go out and play 12 guaranteed games. Uh, but at the same time, if they don't do that work, if they don't put in the work on the 353 non-game days, then they're not going to be as successful as they could be on the 12 game days. And so those days might seem hard and meaningless, but they're impactful for the 12 game days. And our text in Acts, we're getting there, um, is sort of like a Christian version of those 353 non-game days. And the reason why I say that is because last week, we started our sermon series in the book of Acts, and it was, it was powerful, it was exciting. It was this last conversation that Jesus had with his disciples before he ascended into heaven. And, and it culminated in verse 8, where Jesus said that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we said that this verse was the theme verse for the book of Acts because from here on out, the rest of the book of Acts, this is the outline. 
We see the gospel go forth in power in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after Jesus said that, he had a mic drop moment. He ascended into heaven. The disciples were just left staring up at him. And then the story, if it wasn't already powerful enough, two angels show up in the story and they tell the disciples, don't worry, Jesus is coming back, but get to work. You've got stuff to do. And it was all really exciting. And then we get to our story this morning. And at first glance, this story isn't very exciting. This, this story kind of interrupts the flow of the book because we had the exciting promise of the Spirit earlier in chapter 1. Then in chapter 2, which we'll look at next week, the Spirit comes, the mission begins, exciting stuff is happening all over, God is moving in power. But this week we get this little story where the disciples are waiting, they're just hanging out, they're praying, they decide that we probably need to replace Judas since he betrayed Jesus, so we'll, we'll put up a couple of guys and end up uh, choosing Matthias to replace Judas, and it just doesn't really seem very exciting. It seems like Luke could have just cut this out and got from the promise of the Spirit to here comes the Spirit, and it would have been a much better story. But of course, Luke didn't do that. Uh, this story is in here for a reason, and because we believe that uh, the Bible is God's word, we believe that it wasn't just Luke who meant to include this story, it was God himself who meant to include this story. And so um, this story probably has something good to teach us this morning, even if it isn't very excited and exciting. I think the main thing that this story does for us is it helps show us what preparing for the mission of God looks like. So in verse 4, Jesus told the disciples, the Spirit's going to come, but you need to go and you need to wait in Jerusalem. Then chapter 2, next week, it's very dramatic scene. The Spirit comes. Everyone should come back and listen to what Jeff has to say about tongues of fire and all the craziness that's going on there. But in this week, we get what they did to prepare for that. What they did after the promise and before um, the excitement of chapter 2. And so that's why I said it's kind of like the early church's version of those 353 days of the year where college football players are simply preparing. It's not exciting, but it is impactful for the mission at hand. So our passage starts out and it says they, went, they returned to Jerusalem. They went back. They did what Jesus said and they waited but as they were waiting, they weren't passive. They were actively preparing themselves and doing stuff in the moment, in the meantime, waiting on God to move. And just like the disciples, we, we also want to see God move. We want to be on this mission with God in the world. And so if the disciples had to wait and to prepare, then we probably ought to wait and prepare ourselves as well. And so that's what we want to look at this morning. So we'll read uh, Acts 1 starting in verse 12 through the end of the chapter, and I'll just go ahead and read it all at once for us. Acts 1, starting in verse 12, says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And he said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, 
which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven disciples. So what were the disciples doing as they waited and prepared, and what does that have to uh, teach us this morning? That's what we want to look at. I think the first thing uh, that we see in this passage is that readiness for the mission of God, God involves unity around the gospel. And we see that in verse 14. Uh, Luke lists out the remaining 11 disciples by name. Um, he mentions that uh, it's not just the 11 disciples, but it's also some female followers of Jesus. It's Jesus' mother. It's Jesus' brothers. Um, they're all there together in this upper room. And the first thing that Luke tells us about them is that all of these had one accord, that they were united. And that's a pretty big deal because the last time we saw these disciples in Luke's gospel, they weren't united. You have Judas Iscariot, who's one of the 12 disciples. He betrays Jesus and turns him over to be killed. You've got Peter, who's leading this conversation here in this chapter, but he denies knowing Jesus three times. Uh, when Jesus was crucified, his disciples scattered. They all went home. Um, there's no indication that they thought Jesus was coming back. They thought, this is over. Um, we'll just go on and get back with our lives. They each went their separate way. But of course, we, knew that, that we know that that wasn't the end of the story. Jesus rises from the dead. He calls his disciples back together. He gives them this promise that they're going to be his witnesses all through the world. And now in verse 12 and following, we get this picture of this united group of people. And no matter what kind of mission we're talking about in the world, unity is essential for success, isn't it? Uh, if you're playing football and you've got a really good quarterback and a really good receiver, but the receiver is running his route and he breaks in and the quarterback thinks he's going to break out, uh, you're not going to complete the pass. Even if it's a perfect pass and a perfect route, if there's no unity, there's no success. Uh, I'm not a musician, but I can imagine that if Chris is up here playing one song and Emery's up here playing another song and they're both playing those songs with excellence, it's still not going to sound good to us if, there's, if it's two different songs. Unity is essential for any sort of mission, and it's no different for the mission of God and his church. I don't think I have to tell you that there are so many things that can cause division in the church, and yet what we see here is that part of being ready for the mission of God means having a spirit of unity among God's people. 
And this theme uh, isn't just here, it's all over the New Testament. Just a couple of other places I want to look at. One is 1 Corinthians 1. Paul is writing to a church in Corinth that's experienced a lot of division. And early in that letter, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you. And what's interesting in this verse is, that, is where Paul grounds their reason for unity. He says, I appeal to you to be united by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's significant because the unity that the church ought to display is not a unity because we all look the same, think the same, and act the same, and therefore we're united. Our unity is grounded in the fact that we all trust in and love Jesus Christ. In fact, the unity that God desires for his church is actually unity in spite of the fact that we don't all look the same think the same, and act the same. And even when it comes to the mission itself, the the good work of making disciples in the world, we're not going to all be united on how we should do that, or I should say we're not going to all have our same opinions on how we should go about moving the mission forward, but we should be united around the fact that we have a mission to do, that we want to proclaim Christ to the world, and so we can lay down our own preferences for the sake of the mission. Another verse uh, that talks about unity in the New Testament is uh, John 17, 21. Jesus, this is Jesus this time, and he's praying, and he, he says this powerful prayer. He says that they, and he's talking about the church, that they may all be one so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And so here in this verse, Jesus is saying that our unity as a church is actually one of the ways that the world out there will come to trust in Jesus. And that makes perfect sense because our world is so divided and so the church has an opportunity to be held up as this rare beacon of light and unity in the darkness. But the reverse is also true if the church is just like the rest of the world where personal preferences come before anything else, then people won't be attracted to Christ. So Jesus himself shows us that uh, unity is a critical component for mission readiness and that more than that, unity is actually uh, something that will propel the mission forward and is one of the ways that God uses his church to uh, reach out to the world and attract people to Christ. So readiness for the mission requires unity around the gospel. The second thing we see in this story is that uh, readiness for the mission involves devotion to prayer. So verse 14 says that the the disciples took their unity, and what were they doing? They were devoting themselves to prayer. And Luke doesn't tell us exactly what they're praying for, but I think we can assume that uh, they're worshiping God. They're thanking him for raising Jesus from the grave. They're praying that God would send the Spirit like Jesus would promise. They're they're praying that they would be good witnesses and that the mission of God would uh, be carried out in the world. And it's so interesting to me that Jesus makes these big, bold promises that the Spirit's going to come, that you're going to be my witnesses, and then the first thing we see the disciples doing is praying. And that's interesting to me, because if it were me, I would probably do one of two things. I would either just sit and wait for the Spirit to come, because Jesus said that's going to happen, so I'm just going to wait, there's nothing for me to do. Or I'm going to start getting everything ready for the Spirit to come. So I'm going to prepare my house. I'm going to gather some food and pack my clothes. I'm ready to go out on mission. I'm, I'm getting prepared to do it. And yet the disciples who are following what Jesus taught them, they take these big, bold promises from God, 
and they turn around and they pray for them to come about in the world. If I'm honest, sometimes uh, the promises of God actually make it difficult for me to pray. Because when I'm praying, I'm thinking, God, you promised to do this. You're sovereign. You're going to do what you want to do. And so uh, why am I even praying? What, what am I doing? What is the need for me to do this? And you could push back a little bit and say, but yeah, what, what were the disciples supposed to do? They're, they were told to wait. This is the time to pray, but then they're going to get to work. Now's the time to pray. Then chapter two, spirit comes and they got to get to work doing a lot of good things for God. And that's true. They do get to work. They do a lot of incredible things for Christ, but they don't stop praying either. All throughout the book of Acts, there is story after story and verse after verse of God's people devoting themselves to prayer. Just a couple of examples. Uh, The next one is uh, just in chapter 242, describing what the early church is doing when they're gathering together. And one of the things it says is that they devoted themselves to prayers. In Acts 3.1, we see Peter and John are hanging out in Jerusalem, and they go up to the temple, and what do they do? They pray. In Acts 12, Peter's in prison. In Acts 16, Paul and Silas are in prison. And both of those uh, times that these um, disciples are in prison, they're praying, and the church is praying for them. Everyone is praying in the book of Acts. And maybe the most uh, striking example to me is Acts 6. In Acts 6, the disciples appoint people called deacons to help serve the church. And Luke tells us that the reason that they did this was so that they could devote themselves to preaching and to prayer. And so that means that the early church leaders literally gave up doing good ministry so that they could pray more. That's crazy to me. Doesn't seem to be the normal rhythm in our world, does it? Just like unity is essential to the mission, prayer is essential to the mission as well. And there's a lot of mystery to prayer. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't ask questions like, if God is sovereign and he has promised this, well, then why do we pray? There's, there's a mystery to prayer, and there's no perfect answers to that. But as I was studying this passage, uh, I read something that John Stott said, and, and it really encouraged me. Uh, Stott was writing about this text, and he said, there can be little doubt that the grounds of their unity and perseverance in prayer were the command and promise of Jesus. So he's saying Jesus' promise didn't negate their need to pray. This is why they're praying. Stott goes on. He said, he promised to send the Spirit soon. He commanded them to wait for him to come and then to begin their witness. We learn, therefore, that God's promises do not render prayer superfluous. On the contrary, it is only God's promises which give us the warrant to pray and the confidence that he will hear and answer. So what Stott is saying is that is God's promises to us and his invitation for us to pray that actually give us any reason to pray in the first place. Because if the God of the universe didn't ask us to talk to him, then why would we think that we could? Uh, nobody who's in their right mind walks up to the gates of the White House and asks the guard if they can speak to the President of the United States, because we know the answer is going to be no. Of course not. If you want to speak to the president, you need an invitation to speak to the president. And so what Stott is getting at is that there is certainly mystery in prayer, but if we're focused on the question, if God is sovereign, why do we pray? We're actually focused on the wrong question. The better question to focus on would be, why on earth does God invite us to pray in the first place? 
Why did God invite us to participate in his mission by praying for it to come about? He can make it come about whether we pray or not. And I don't know why God has invited us to pray, but I do know that he has. I do know he's invited us on this mission, and and what we see here is that part of getting ready for the mission involves a devotion to prayer. Uh, This week, uh, Chris shared a story where he... uh, said he was in a, at a time when he was struggling to pray, and he reached out to a pastor and said, help me, help me pray better. And uh, the pastor's advice was, uh, get a group of friends and pray together. And Chris was like, well, that, that wasn't very helpful. I, I want to know how I can pray better. But in hindsight, Chris said that was great advice, because when you uh, gather a group and pray, one, it's harder not to do it, because if you're not there, somebody knows. And two, you learn to pray from the community of others. And so if you're struggling to, to pray for the mission, if you don't know what it looks like to pray for God to bring his promises about in the world, my encouragement for you would be find a group of friends and pray together. Uh, one thing that we did that we mentioned last week is we launched a prayer group. Um, this group meets on Thursdays at noon at our offices at Vault 405. And if you're available at that time on your lunch break and uh, you want to come pray with us, this is a great opportunity to do this. We focus those prayers on the mission of God in the world um, and God bringing about that mission. So we'd love for you to join us um, and to come pray. Third thing we see in this story is that readiness for the mission involves commitment to community. So this theme of community is all over the passage. Uh, we see it in the simple fact that uh, the disciples went back to Jerusalem and they waited on the Spirit together. They could have just gone back to their own homes. Uh, Jesus didn't tell them how long it was going to take the Spirit to come. Maybe it was going to be a couple of months. Um, and yet what they did is they went back to Jerusalem and they gathered together. We've got the 11 disciples there. We've got some female followers of Jesus there. We've got Jesus's family there. And by verse 15, we see their group has grown over time because there's at least 120 of them there gathering together in preparation for the mission. All throughout scripture, it's clear that uh, God's mission in the world goes forth through communities of people on mission for him. We see that all over the Old Testament where God calls out the people of Israel and uses them as a light in the world to draw others to himself. We see that was Jesus's pattern as he calls this group of 12 together. And then when he sends those 12 out, he always sends them in groups of two, never alone. We see it in uh, the prayer from John 17 that we already looked at where Jesus prays that unity, which involves community, um, you can't be united if you're just on your own, um, that this unity of community would enable their mission. And we also see it maybe most clearly in um, Paul in the use of the body imagery in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, in both of those passages, Paul compares the church to the human body. And he says, just like the body has many different parts, and yet each part is different, but each part is significant, so the church is made up of many different people who are all unique, who have all different gifts, and yet each person and each gift is significant to the church as a whole. And so it follows then that if the primary mission of the church, which we saw in Acts 1, is to make disciples and to be a witness for Jesus— 
And if the church functions like a body with many different parts, many different people, each with different gifts and different uh, unique callings and makeups, then the church, our church, cannot fulfill our mission best in this world without every single person playing their part. It requires being in community with a group of believers. Now, that's hard. Uh, it's hard in our world that is busy and individualistic and materialistic because community takes planning, it takes time, it takes cutting things from your schedule to have time for others. Sometimes it takes money to uh, care for others who are struggling or to cook a meal for more people than you usually cook for. It requires intentionality um, to know what's going on in others' lives and to pray for them. It's hard. Community isn't easy in our world, but what we see in Scripture is that community is the pattern that God uses to bring about his kingdom in the world. And so uh, we ought to be in community with one another. Uh, I plugged the prayer group, but also just uh, get a plug in for small groups. Um, If you're not in a small group yet, um, small groups are a great place to jump into a community of other followers of Jesus in our church, um, and we would love to help you get connected to one. Readiness for the mission involves commitment to, a com- to community, and, and directly related to that is that readiness for the mission involves stepping up to serve. This passage ends with Peter getting up and leading these followers of Jesus to replace Judas. And there's a lot we could get into in these verses, but the main thing I want to draw out for us this morning is that I think the primary reason they replaced Judas was because they had a mission to do, and they needed someone to do it. They needed people to get on board with the mission so that they could go out and be witnesses for Jesus in the world. And so they suggest two people, one named Joseph, one named Matthias. They pray, they cast lots, and then they choose Matthias. Um, just a quick aside about casting lots, because that's uh, something weird that pops up in this passage. So what's going on there? Um, Casting lots seems like a a superstitious thing to us. And so when we see these Christians doing this, we might be wondering, well, why were they doing that? Are they just like throwing out some dice to see what they should do? That doesn't sound uh, very Christianly. Uh, But what's interesting is that in the Bible, God actually told his people to use uh, lots in order that he could reveal his will to them. So in the Old Testament, they had some decisions to make, and God says, well, uh, use the casting of lots, and I will determine the outcome of those lots in order to tell you what my will is. So it really wasn't originally anything superstitious. It was actually a way to rely on God's will in a specific situation. So then you might be thinking, well, if that's true, then why don't we still do that today? And what's interesting is this story right here, the end of Acts 1, is the last time we ever see that happen in Scripture. And that's significant because of what happens next in chapter 2, and that the Holy Spirit comes. So in the Old Testament, when they were casting lots, remember that God's Spirit didn't indwell all of God's people. He indwelled specific people at specific times for a specific purpose. But now that God's Spirit has come, He indwells all followers of Jesus. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, you have direct access to God's wisdom and decision-making, and we don't have to cast lots. So uh, if you've got a big decision to make this week, you should follow the disciples' example in praying for that decision, uh, but don't just throw some dice, and if it's an even number, do this, and if it's an odd number, do that. 
Uh, That's not what God wants us to do. Back to the point. Readiness for the mission involves stepping up to serve. We see uh, the disciples go to Jerusalem. They've got 15 to 20 people. They've got 120 people by the end of the story. People are ready. They're hungry. They've seen Christ raised from the dead, and they want to go out and live on mission for him. And it's just a simple fact that it takes people to do the mission of God. The more people we have on board, the more mission that we can do. Now, of course, God can do incredible things through a small number of people, and we see him do that in Scripture as he builds an entire church with these 12 disciples. But it also doesn't stop with the 12. It's 120 by the end of chapter 1. It's 3,000 by the end of chapter 2. And because there's more and more people, the church grows exponentially quicker because more people on mission means more people hearing about Jesus and more people coming to faith in Christ. And so let me just ask you, are you on board? Have you committed your life to the mission of God? Have you committed to this church and to our mission in the world? And I don't know what that specifically looks like for you. There are countless ways that you can serve this church and you can serve in the world based on who you are and how God's made you. It it means serving the church through a serve team. It means serving your neighbors and serving um, your coworkers and serving your family and your friends. I don't know, again, what that looks like for you, but what we see in this story and we'll see all throughout the book of Acts is that the gospel goes forth as ordinary people use their gifts in the ordinary context of their lives. So back at the beginning, I I said that this story seems like an interruption uh, in the book of Acts, and I still think that it is an interruption, um, but I think it's an intentional interruption. I I think that in God's sovereignty uh, and in Jeff's outlining of uh, this sermon series, this was intentional to have us slow down and pause and wait here. Because we'll get to the exciting stuff next week. We'll get to tongues of fire and the spirit coming. We'll get to 3,000 believing in one day. Um, But we have to look and see what they did first. How did they prepare? I I think one of the big takeaways that I have from this story is that uh, if I want to do big things for God in the world, I have to be willing to do the hard things too. I have to be willing to devote myself to prayer for the mission. I have to be willing to lay down personal preferences for the sake of unity among God's people. I have to be willing to live in community even when it's hard. I have to be willing to serve even when I'd rather sleep in or uh, eat dinner on the couch watching Netflix. And then that begs the question, why? Why would we do all this? Why would we participate in this mission? Why would we get ready for this mission? And so that's where I want to end with the last point is that readiness for the mission involves the proper motivation. Judas is all over this text, and we didn't really talk uh, much about Judas, but I think his story and his example does give us some final encouragement as we close. So what do we know about Judas? Uh, Well, just from this story in the book of Acts, we know that Judas was one of the 12 disciples. Uh, We know that Judas was numbered among them, Peter says. He shared in the ministry. So Judas was with them. He was doing ministry. And yet we also know that Judas uh, turned Jesus in for financial gain. We know that Judas chose 
earning some money over being faithful to Jesus. And so Judas gives us this stark contrast in the story between choosing himself over Jesus and the disciples who are just choosing to pray and to be obedient and to commit themselves to Jesus. But it's an interesting contrast because all throughout the Gospels, up until Judas's betrayal, there's no difference, there's no contrast between Judas and the other 11. If we could go back in time and read the Gospels for the first time without ever knowing that Judas betrays Jesus, we wouldn't see it coming. All 12 disciples are with Jesus, they eat with Jesus, they serve with Jesus, they hear Jesus teach, and yet in the end, Judas chooses a different path. And so when it comes time to replace Judas, this is also interesting, Uh, What's the criteria that Peter says for the person who would replace Judas? He says, I want it to be someone who was with Jesus from Jesus' baptism all the way up until his ascension. And so at first, it seems like that's just describing Judas. Why would Peter give the same criteria? It didn't work out with Judas. Surely we want someone different this time. But the one difference between that description and Judas is that Judas didn't see Jesus' resurrection and ascension. Judas had betrayed Jesus and died before that happened, but Matthias, who would replace Judas, saw Christ raised and saw Christ ascend. And why does that matter? Well, it matters because if Matthias saw those things, Matthias knew beyond any shadow of a doubt that Jesus was Lord and that Jesus was someone worth giving his life up for. Matthias knew This person is worth it. And so Matthias puts himself forward and has the motivation he needs to continue with the mission. Judas was closer to Jesus than anybody who has ever lived in the world other than the other 11 disciples. And yet Judas didn't know Jesus in a way that caused him to want to give up his life for him. Judas probably thought that Jesus was a good teacher. He probably thought Jesus had really good things to say and good promises for him. But that view of Jesus didn't give Judas enough motivation to choose Jesus when the rubber met the road and Judas had an opportunity to get rich or be obedient to Christ. And I think the story of Judas is a good challenge for us as those who live in Oklahoma in the heart of the Bible Belt. If all this talk about mission from last week and getting ready for the mission from this week doesn't get you excited, then it might be because your understanding of Jesus isn't giving you the proper motivation. Maybe you like what Jesus says, you like what Jesus promises, but do you really believe that Jesus is Lord of your life and that he's worth living, he's worth losing everything for? If we don't believe that, it's going to be hard to live on mission because living on mission is hard. Our world is pulling us in every other direction. And so as we get ready for the mission, let's also do the hard work of the heart check of, do we love Jesus? Is Jesus the Lord of our life? We're willing to do hard things when for people we love and for things we love. So do we love Jesus? It's challenging. It's been challenging for me as as I've studied this passage. God promised the disciples that they would be his witnesses to the end of the earth. And that's what we're going to see. They do. 
they go out in power in chapter 2. They spread the gospel around the world. The church that is still alive 2,000 years later happens because of that. But God's promises in the world didn't negate the disciples' need to prepare either. God didn't just control them like puppets to bring about their mission, his mission in the world. They were motivated by their love for Jesus. They put in the hard work of preparing for the mission, and then they went out and they told the world about Christ. Disciples knew it was hard. Uh, They knew they needed to prepare. Uh, We ought to follow their example and prepare ourselves as well. So as we continue to study uh, this book of Acts, we'll, we'll see the gospel go forth. Uh, But let's remember the preparation as well. Let's remember the prayer and the community and the unity and the service and and the motivation in it all. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that you have called us to yourself and that being called to you means being sent on mission for you. God, I pray that you pursued us and I, I pray that you would help us pursue others in this world who do not know you. Uh, But Father, I also pray that you would help us do the hard work of preparing for that mission. Father, I pray you'd help us um, be people of prayer, be people who are willing to lay down our own preferences for the sake of your mission in the world. Father, I pray that you would fan uh, the flame in our heart that loves you. Father, that you would increase our affections for you, that those affections would propel us to live for you with all that we have. That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.